0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper discusses his book, A Sacred Oath. He speaks about his time serving in the Trump administration. I'm probably not the first defense secretary or cabinet member to face this where people propose ideas that you just think are wrong or inappropriate. And my job is always to push back, right? And if it's the president, uh, to offer up better ideas, better solutions, try and meet his intent and get to a, a you know a better, more enduring place uh, that's best for uh, the country, consistent with what the president is trying to do. He's interviewed by National Defense Industrial Association Chairman Arnold Punero.
1: Well, I'm honored and privileged to be here this morning with former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. I might also say former Secretary of the Army Mark Esper, Colonel, retired United States Army Mark Esper, served in uniform on active duty, served in the Army National Guard, served in the Army Reserve, one of the few people I know that served in all three components of the United States Army for a distinguished 21-year career. Dr. Esper, PhD, Vice President Esper of one of the largest defense and aerospace companies that we have um, in our our defense industrial base, professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, head of policy on the House Armed Services Committee, National Security Advisor to one of the most distinguished senators, Fred Thompson. Uh, a very varied career, and, and you brought extensive background to your role as Secretary of Defense. And we're here today to discuss uh, your late your book, which is entitled A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense to an Extraordinary Time. And I'd like to start by saying that I believe, if I'm correct, that uh, when you graduated as a second lieutenant from West Point... Mm-hmm you raised your right hand and you said I, Mark Esper, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties on the office on which I'm about to enter, so help me God. I take an oath, you took an oath to the Constitution, Is this what you're referring to, Secretary Esper, when you talk about the title of the book, The Sacred Oath?
0: Well, first of all, General Pinaro, thank you very much for that very kind introduction and and, and litany of my resume. But, uh, yeah, look, it's The Sacred Oath. And and actually, that was the second time I took the oath. The first time as an 18-year-old with freshly cut hair and a a new uniform as a West Point cadet in 1982. And, And I took that oath another dozen times or so after that. And to me, that's what it came down to. Is my sacred oath as I as I navigated my way uh, throughout a career, but really uh, in the 18 months or so that I served as Secretary of Defense, I often had to go back to what is my oath and what guided me. You know, the principles of uh, West Point's motto of duty, honor, country is what I often had to go back to and ask myself what is the right thing to do in this situation.
1: So, hi. So, give me a little bit better explanation. That was a great explanation, but a little bit more insight. You, you approached something that, that in the book you call values-based decision-making. You were looking at values. Was the values tied back to the oath? It was tied to duty on a country. Mm-hmm. Your West Point class had its own motto that you used. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, I think, you know, for any cabinet secretary, you have a lot of uh, authority and responsibility, particularly with the Department of Defense. You know, 2.8 million people in terms of service million, uh, members and civilians. Uh, responsible for operations around the globe it's it's a hefty job and so you have to have uh, certain things to guide you uh, it begins with the national security strategy uh, what the president wants to accomplish your national defense strategy but at the end of the day it comes back to your moral compass and those principles that guide you and for me in many of those situations where I didn't have you know sufficient guidance or or had to sort through the situation myself I re- went back to those core values of what's important for our national security or what's important for the institution of the de- Defense Department or, or even more so, what's important to the institution uh, that we call the profession of arms. And those things are very, very important to me, particularly when you consider the unique, unique relationship that the United States military has with the American people and how special it is that in our country, as, com- as compared to many, many others, We understand uh, the role of uh, the military in society and that uh, that the military takes its guidance from civilian leadership. But there
1: were a number of times when there were decisions that you didn't agree with and you were talking sometimes to the president, sometimes to some of his senior people in the White House, where you actually said, as you you said in the book, my oath is to the Constitution, not to the individual. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, look, there are any number of occasions, and I'm
0: probably not the first defense secretary or cabinet member to face where people propose ideas that you just think are wrong or inappropriate. And my job is always to push back, right? And if it's the president, uh, to offer up better ideas, better solutions, try and meet his intent and get to a a better, more enduring place uh, that's best for uh, the country, consistent with what the president is trying to do. So that becomes your role. And as I think about it, I I always got to go back to what is my oath? And my oath is to the Constitution. It's not to... For any of us, it's not to a president, it's not to a party, it's not to a philosophy, right? It is to the Constitution. And I think the reason why we have a Senate confirmation process is that uh, Congress, the people's representatives, want to know that uh, that's what's guiding you and that's what you intend to adhere to. And that's what I promised when I was confirmed 90 to 8
1: in July of 2019. One of our colleagues, Dr. Charlie Stevenson, a former professor at the National Defense University, is wrote a book titled The Nearly Impossible Job of Secretary of Defense. Uh, Secretary Austin now is the 28th Secretary of Defense. You were the 27th. Charlie's book was written before your tenure, so he covers a number of your of your predecessors. But he talked about the job of running the largest, most complex organization in our own federal government, I would argue, in the world. You're talking about 1.3 million active duty, 880,000 drill and reservists, 750,000 civil service employees, Seven hundred and fifty thousand contractors, five thousand locations worldwide, and he said that it's really nearly impossible. And then you talk about how you had some extraordinary circumstances that you were dealing with beyond those that your predecessors had to deal with. You had a global pandemic, the likes of which we hadn't seen in over a hundred years, and you had to put in place Operation Warp Speed. I'd like mm-hmm. to get to that. You were dealing with, still dealing with uh, wars on the ground where our troops were in harm's mm-hmm. way in Iraq and Afghanistan and other areas, and you had some of these other concerns um, about, you know, withdrawing troops from Europe or bringing troops back from Syria. Talk a little bit about, you know, you title it "extraordinary times," but frankly, uh, I think the title "nearly impossible times" <laughs> probably would apply to your tenure when you when you think about all the things that you had to deal with and some of the challenges. Um, because you talked about the commander in Chief in the book, you said he was idiosyncratic, unpredictable, and unprincipled, and yet you were having to make decisions to deal with all those issues with that kind with that person was your boss. no question about it. Tell us a little bit about that
0: well first of all, it is a great job it 's a very demanding job, and you have to rely on the people uh, below you to really uh, to really deliver and I had a great crew of both uh, civilian and military leaders, to do it. But when you think about the scope of it, on one hand, you have to be a diplomat and a statesman mm-hmm. and engage in foreign policy. Uh, next, you have to run uh, the department. You have, you're responsible for the combatant commanders and giving them direction on how to function around the globe in terms of military forces. You have to give guidance to the service secretaries and service chiefs about how to prepare for the future, how to organize their forces, equipment to buy. And then, of course, you're responsible for schools and hospitals and child development centers and uh, you know the health and welfare of... Not just service members and civilians, but I think there's up to 10 million uh, other dependents who rely on military health care. So you have all that, right? And then on top of that, at least during my tenure, and look, it's a demanding job regardless, but we do face this first global pandemic in 100 years. we got the uh, war in Afghanistan. We have conflict in Syria. We have the aftermath of the exchanges, the conflict with Iran. And then you put on top of that, um, you know, civil unrest, uh, you put on top of that all the other things we face, and it was a really demanding time. And I'm, quite frankly, very proud of 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 what my folks were able to do during these very challenging times of 2020 and how we navigated all this to, to both defend America abroad but support America at home, either, like you said, with COVID, uh, warp speed. But recall, we had 20, 30, 40,000 people, Army doctors, nurses, and others deployed in cities across the United States, setting up field hospitals and reorganizing the Javits Center into the largest hospital in the United States to deal with COVID. And uh, many of these service members, God bless them, uh, particularly the National Guard, left home and risked their own lives, their own welfare to treat their fellow Americans. It was a monumental time for the U.S. military.
1: Well, when governments are incapacitated, a large, large geographical areas was the case with COVID. There's only one outfit in our country that can do that, and that's the Department of Defense. We do it for hurricanes, we do it for fires, right. we did it for the civil unrest, we did it for COVID. Because you were Secretary of the Army, you knew the head of the Army Materiel Command, uh, General Gus Perna. And um, when it came time to put Operation Warp Speed into effect, and let's face it, we, you had some very talented scientific medical experts, but the, my understanding, and I I got had the opportunity to work with him a little bit, particularly to help him get ready for his confirmation, but also for his testimonies uh, before the Hill, it was pretty much a DOD operation. And my understanding is is it really did go at warp speed because people predicted that we'd never see a, a, a usable vaccine for years and years and years. Talk a little bit about that and what was accomplished by Operation Warp Speed and the, and the personnel from the Department of Defense that were integral to that right. success.
0: Well, look, uh, you're so right about Gus Perna, but first of all, let's talk about outcom- outcomes uh, it was probably the greatest public-private partnership in, um, in U.S. history and uh, probably, you know, in, in some ways on parallel with the Apollo program. And I will tell you, there were a lot of skeptics that said, you'll never get a vaccine with sufficient efficacy out in, uh, in, in time. It'll take five to ten years. And yet, uh, this uh, this uh, combination of DOD and, uh, and HHS, right, uh, I was able to co-lead it with Alex Azar, we delivered in uh, less than 12 months, less than eight months, two vaccines with 90% plus efficacy. And you and I wouldn't be sitting here together with right. our, without face masks if it weren't for those vaccines. But, but go back to where it began. Yes, I got to know Gus Perna, General Perna. He was the head of Army Material Command. At a time when we were making sweeping changes in the Army, uh, I stood up uh, Army Futures Command, a way to kind of break the acquisition gridlock and, and so that we could modernize the Army from the Reagan era. And Gus Perna, I quickly learned, was a selfless, selfless team player who put his duty first and was willing to give up parts of his organization for the better good of establishing AFC. And that told me a lot about him. So when it came time in the spring of uh, 2020 to set up Warp Speed and DOD's specific responsibilities were logistics, but, but really distribution, manufacturing, pulling that piece of it all together, it was very apparent to me and General Mark Milley that Gus Perna was the right guy. And, uh, look, he was about ready to retire. And yet right. he came yep. back, he extended his active duty time, and worked 24-7 and delivered uh, for the American people. Uh, look, we, we had our share of hiccups. But uh, by the time, I think, President Biden was uh, inaugurated in January, we were delivering over a million doses a day to the American people. Just a tremendous effort. And he and,
1: and our counterparts at HHS deserve a lot of credit. A- amen. And, and I enjoyed talking to him because he came from Italian background like sure. I did. So we talked about our grandparents that had come from Italy and of course, the kind of foods that we like, these spaghetti and meatballs, a little glass of wine here and there. So he was just a great leader yeah. and great accomplishment. Let's talk a little bit about, because so, I want to get into a series of questions that of the role of the Secretary of Defense. The, the statute that governs the Department of Defense is primarily found in Title 10 of U.S. Code. And that was updated in, in 1986. I was privileged to be the staff director of the Armed Services Committee when we passed what is now known as the Goldwater-Nichols right. Act. And to make sure we had... Total civilian control of our military, we put in Title X that everything in the Department of Defense is subject to the, the authority, direction, and control of the Secretary of Defense. And that was your understanding of your statutory authorities, correct?
0: Right. Well, look, I, I learned Goldwater Nichols uh, uh, all the way through my career in the Army. And of course, it was past the year I graduated from West Point. And, and absolutely, look, the Secretary of Defense has all the authority. There are only two people, in fact. In the entire United States, that can deploy U.S. troops abroad. It's the president of the United States and the secretary of defense. So every couple weeks, I would sign deployment orders. And, uh, and the chain of command runs from the president to the secretary of defense to the combatant commanders. We have a series of both geographic and functional combatant commanders. And what a lot of people don't understand, and, and General Mark Miller used to try and educate our colleagues about this, is that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is a statutory advisor Correct. to the Secretary of Defense and to the President, and that is the role that uh, he's responsible for. He did a great job for me, and I think he served the President well also. But that's his role. Uh, it's not a command role, not an oper- operational role. And uh, so that's the, and understanding those the, the roles that different people play is critical. And then you've got the service chiefs and service secretaries who are also in the chain of command, but not in an operational mode, but in terms of, uh, as, as you know from Title X, uh, manning, training, equipping, and organizing the force, the force that they then hand off to the combatant commanders to deploy and employ. And that's a very important distinction in our yeah. in our way. And,
1: and as the Secretary of the Army, the civilian head of the Department of the Army, you were subject to the authority, direction, and control of then-Secretary Jim Mattis. Right. But your Army chief, who was then at one point Mark Milley, was subject to your authority, direction, and control. So the point is... And that was the framers of Goldwater Nichols wanted to make sure we had absolute civilian control of the military and so it go it, it and like you say there's only only one person other than the commander-in-chief and by the way he has to go through the Secretary of Defense to the warfighting commands and so right. there were a number of instances where you know um, there were times when th- there were suggestions made uh, to the warfighting commands one that comes to mind in the book that Frankly, what concerned me as someone that is really a student of this area was uh, you mentioned in the book that at one point uh, there were some suggestions by some of the senior staff in the White House that we move 250,000 active duty military to the southern border to help protect the border. And that perhaps some people in the Department of Homeland Security were also involved. And the U.S. Northern Command, which is one of the warfighting commands established Mm -hmm. by Don Rumsfeld uh, after 9-11 whose whole mission is to protect the the United States of America, uh, the land space, the air space, some of the the sea space, Northern Command actually started planning for that operation uh, based on a suggestion by a staffer at the White House that had no authority to do so, and you as Secretary of Defense and and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs didn't know about it. Tell me a little bit about that situation. That should worry us, that that one of our warfighting commands would be acting on... Got us in direction that didn't come from the Secretary of Defense.
0: Well, yeah, I, I recount this story where I'm in the Oval Office and Stephen Miller uh, speaks up from behind me and says, "You know, we need to send a quarter million troops to the border to deal with caravans coming up from from uh, Central America." And uh, I think he's joking. I turn around, he presses again, and I say, I, "I don't, I don't have a quarter million troops to deal with that nonsense. You know, DHS can handle it." And uh, he had suggested that they were working on it. And I came back to the Pentagon and. A day or so later, pulled General Milley aside, and I told him, check on it. Let's make sure nothing's going on. And to our surprise, there was planning happening, and I assume it was kind of layers below the the commander. Uh, And DOD likes to lean into things, and for all they knew, it was guidance coming from the White House. I I don't know exactly how it flowed, but that was my assumption. And I shut it down immediately because I just thought it was completely foolhardy. Uh, It wasn't the right way to address Mm -hmm. the problem. And look, we have a problem on the border. Uh, We we need border security. We need to know who's coming across and, and what they're bringing. But the solution wasn't a quarter million troops that I didn't have to begin with. It's beefing up DHS. It's giving DHS the, the officers, the material, the resources that they, they need to do it. And so I kind of shut that down immediately and put the word out. If anybody in DOD or DHS or whoever has a problem, come see me and I'll deal with it. Because at the end of the day, nobody was going anywhere unless I signed the deployment order. And I knew I wasn't about to send a quarter million troops to the border. We already had some troops down or a few thousand, just like uh, President Biden has today. But it was just an,
1: another outlandish idea. So in that area, of course, as you mentioned, uh, our our active duty military, the Guard and Reserve were called up for COVID and did a variety of things from medical essential things to basically operating uh, medical stations, but handing out supplies and things of that nature. And we call that uh, defense support to civil authorities. And there are a number of times in the book where you basically, because of the civil unrest, there were requirements uh, for our military to perhaps be a participant. And one thing people should understand, for example, had those 250,000 active duty troops been sent to the border, they have no law enforcement authority under posse comitatus. Now the president can declare certain national emergencies and perhaps, but the Guard actually, the National Guard can actually exercise law enforcement. So talk a little bit about some of the civil unrest situations that you had to deal with and how you saw the role of the active military compared to that of the National Guard. So I, I was fortunate
0: in this, in this sense, based on my experience, that I served on active duty, I served in the Guard, I served in Reserve. So I had a fairly good understanding of what the not just the roles and responsibilities of each were, but also the training and the, mm-hmm. the equipping and what they could do. And I was, I was in the D.C. Guard, for example. And, look, you're right, um, particularly when it comes to civil unrest, there is a role for the National Guard, principally, to support law enforcement. And that was the important thing that I tried to keep reinforcing with, uh, with the president alongside uh, Attorney General Barr that law enforcement should deal with civil unrest and if they need support, uh, then it's the role of the governors to make that determination uh, and, and if it's in the capital, then of course uh, the president through his chain of command can do that. But my view is we were always should always be last in terms of consideration and then use the guard because of the authorities they have. And you know after the you know the the, the walk we made through Lafayette Park, which was a mistake for me and certainly I know uh, General Milley feels the same way. Uh, that night I directed that. Uh, a memo be prepared for me. I signed it out mid-afternoon the next day that basically said, look, we, we have a role in providing support to civilian authorities, particularly in dealing with civil unrest. Uh, because as a right now, look, I believe in law, law and order. Uh, and I believe that Americans should have the right to exercise their First Amendment rights of assembly and protest and petition. And uh, unfortunately, it was, you know, there were people in that crowd that were doing violent things that were denying people that peaceful rights. So we had that. I wanted to make sure people understood. We had a right to safeguard Americans' uh, you, you know, rights to protest their government. But at the same time, we are an apolitical organization and need to stay away from uh, you know, being caught up in, in the politics of the, those moments and those days. And look, that's a tough thread, to, you, you know, uh, tough thread to, to weave there as you go through this day by day. But keep in mind, we had, in the wake of the tragic murder of George Floyd, hundreds of cities where civil unrest was happening. And uh, you, you have to give people that room to express themselves peacefully about what they see as injustice or whatever the case may be.
1: And and, I, and you felt like, I think, you created the right balance, even though there were people that maybe wanted you to go a little bit further using active duty troops. A couple of, of anecdotes in there about people making suggestions about things we, we wouldn't do, which is shoot our fellow Americans right, and right. things like that. But did you feel like that in, in the areas where you got pushed on, you were able to Uh, implement the correct balance between uh, law enforcement and and the role of our military, particularly the National Guard? Yeah, I think in terms of outcomes, if you look at it, I think we got it right at the end of the
0: day that uh, law enforcement led. Uh, We would argue internally that it should be local law enforcement and then state and then federal. And then if you need the Guard, you could use the Guard. But in all these instances, to include Lafayette Park, the Guard performed its mission of protecting federal buildings and federal activities. And one of the mistaken reporting coming out of that day and the subsequent days was somehow that the Guard used violence and shot pepper balls and rubber bullets. None of that happened. The Guard performed its mission and, uh, and, and stayed in, in terms of protecting those institutions and activities. So I was very proud of them. You know, you had on any one day during that summer of 2020, you had guardsmen out in the streets, uh, you know, protecting federal facilities and Americans' right to protest. You had another group of guardsmen. Uh, in hospitals, the field hospitals, taking care of their fellow Americans who were dealing with COVID. And you had other guardsmen uh, out deployed in, uh, you know, hot spots around right. the world. And even then, you still had guardsmen dealing with wildfires in California or flooding in the in the Midwest. It just was a tremendous time for the National Guard, and uh, I think it was their year.
1: And, and, and you know from your own service in the Army Reserve and the Army Guard, since 9-11, We've had over one million members of the National Guard and Reserve mobilized and deployed overseas or at home, and they get demobilized. And they are a true bargain for the taxpayer because you don't have to put in place all the infrastructure that you have to have for active duty troops that are on active duty 365 days a year. So the Guard and Reserve, you've made the point, they're operational now. They're very different from the Strategic Reserve they were in the peak of the Cold War. and. You see them on the front lines every single day, and I know uh, the American people appreciate yeah. that, and they appreciate the leadership. One one thing in that area, and I want to r- read from my paper, because because of some of the concerns you had, you and General Milley, then chairman of the Joint Chiefs, established what you call the four no's. No unnecessary wars, no strategic retreats, no politicization of DOD, and no misuse of the military. You've addressed that with the Guard. Mm-hmm. So, um how were you able to deal with these concerns and handle decisions you didn't agree with? You didn't agree with the, the plan to remove troops from Germany, although you put in place an alternative. Uh, there was withholding of aid from Ukraine. Finally, it did get over there. Blockade in Cuba and Venezuela, activity with Iran. Some instances it was suggested call up retired officers from active duty and court-martial them because they're saying things people didn't like. Um and what were you prepared to do if there was a case when there was a red line that was crossed and you weren't able to support
0: it? Yeah, look, a lot of great questions here. And it's uh, one of the things, you know, I wrestled with a lot. You go back to the book, Sacred Oath, is, Oath is to the Constitution. But part of the Constitution is Article II, which establishes the president. Uh, he's the commander in chief. And, and you're also bound to obey his lawful orders. And, you know, in many ways, I was fortunate because President Trump rarely issued. Orders, But for the, the Germany case, but kind of walk through these things sequentially, you're right. In terms of Ukraine assistance, which we are obligated to do under the law because Congress appropriated, it, it would be me at times or me and John Bolton or John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and I would engage the president and kind of push him to release the security assistance for Ukraine. It eventually happened. We learned why later. I, le- I at least did through the media uh, why he was holding it up. But that wasn't a case where my duty was to go back to him and push and press and make every possible argument I could. To get that released, and I talk about it in the book. Uh, in other cases, with uh, you know NATO, uh, or in the the case where I got the written order to withdraw troops from Germany, uh, my game plan was to really give my commander. Now we're talking about combatant commander General Todd Walters for European Command. I gave him a series of principles I wanted to do some planning off of that I would reassure our allies, I would deter Russia, take care of our troops, five things, mm-hmm. and he came back with a pretty good concept that at the end of the day met the president's direct order to withdraw troops, uh, but at the same time allowed me to take those troops that we withdrew from Germany and either consolidate them in other countries or eventually push them forward closer to Russia, which met these, met these uh, 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 principles I had defined as reassure allies and deter Russia. And I thought it was a, a very clever idea put forward by, uh, by the combatant commander. I endorsed it. We briefed it to the president. He knew exactly uh, what we were doing when I briefed him, and uh, it met what he wanted. And so I, I thought it was, again, I, I didn't like its origin, uh, but what we came up with at the end of the day was a workable solution to meet the president's intent. But for me, to do it in a way that made strategic sense, that bolstered our presence in Europe um, and that deterred the Russians. And look where we are today. And frankly, I wish they had followed the plan uh, yeah. because we would have had more troops in Rom- Romania, Poland, and Right, and, and
1: we're expanding our troops. And I mean, one of we're your first trips, actually, you went over to NATO to reassure our NATO allies, but actually to... Put them on the spot. I mean, even when you and I were working on the hill together, uh, our bosses were saying NATO, our NATO allies aren't carrying their fair share. So that was a legitimate thing for the president to make. Yeah, I, but I, I mean, did. you were a big supporter of NATO, and I think we see today NATO is more important than ever. Would that be your assessment too? Uh, look, I I do. I was
0: uh, I, I served in NATO as a young army officer in Europe in the in the 1990s. And yes, I went to Brussels as acting sec def before I was confirmed, before I think the president put my name for it. You won't tell the Senate that. <laughs> I uh, And I, I said to uh, publicly that I believed in NATO, that I thought it was important. But, and this is where President Trump was right, they needed to live up to their obligations. I think at the time, only six or seven countries yeah. was living up to its 2% GDP commitment. And he was right that Germany was in the wrong for supporting Nord Stream 2. So I also carried those messages as well. And, and uh, so I think... Unfortunately, Ukrainians are paying the price uh, for everybody not being on guard enough or wary enough about Russia. And I think hopefully now we'll see more NATO countries meet those commitments.
1: Well, and and let's talk about Russia, because, frankly, one of the things that that you did early on as Secretary of the Army with Jim Mattis and then as Secretary of Defense, uh, we had a new national defense strategy. Actually, there hadn't been one in a number of years. And as you know from your service in OSD policy, from uh, other Mm -hmm. jobs, that it's a fundamental planning document for the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense decision-making process, which is being reviewed by a congressional commission, the planning, programming, mm-hmm. budgeting, and execution system, which is how the department puts its decision into right. monetary factors, it becomes a budget they submit to the Congress, is guided by a, a bunch of documents, one of which, of course, is the national defense strategy, which would flow should flow from the overall national security strategy. Right. And... Uh, When Mattis took over SecDef, you took over SEC-Army, you spent a lot of time and came out with a national defense strategy that was really revolved around what you call great power competition, near-peer competitors, China, Russia, uh, to a more limited extent, North Korea and Iran, and then global terrorism. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Russia was a centerpiece, China was a centerpiece. Talk a little bit about what you did as Secretary of Defense to ensure that the national defense strategy was not just a bunch of words. And look at what's happening now. Uh, Russia basically is is doing some of the things the new strategy said was going to happen if we didn't deter Mm -hmm. them. And then I'm going to go to China next. Uh, But let's talk about what you did as Secretary of Defense to try to implement that strategy. And I'd like to get your sense, where do you feel it is today?
0: Right. Well, look. I thought it was a solid strategy, and uh, and I think this is another accomplishment of the Trump administration. One of the things it it did, first time ever, was consolidate a U.S. government view that China is a strategic adversary, and I thought that was extremely important, particularly all the years I, I worked on China issues. And so, um, but that said, my sense as Secretary of the Army was that it wasn't being implemented, and as I came in as Secretary of Defense. What I told others, what I told uh, my chain of command, what I said to the Congress, to the Senate during my nomination was I would make implementation of the, ND- of the NDS, National Defense Strategy, my priority, top priority. And so within a couple months of taking office in July 2019, I had this senior leaders conference. I brought everybody in, uh, civilian and military, uh, leaning heavily on my civilian side to draft up what we called the 10 objectives, right? That would be the implementation. Uh, objectives by which we would implement the NDS. So it was everything from uh, defining China as the pacing threat to new operational concepts such, uh, immediate re- such as immediate reaction forces. We needed to update all of our war plans. I mean, it goes on and on and on about the objectives because, look, when you're leading a large organization like DOD, right, 2.8 million people, I can't get out and tell everybody what I want them to do. Right. And so you do it through documents such as the NDS. You do it through documents such as an implementation plan. And that's the way by which you do it, and you supplement, supplement it by visiting the commands, by visiting people and explaining and emphasizing and urging and checking on it. And I made that part and parcel of my weekly duties was every week to check on with the entire team assembled, how are we doing uh, in terms of implementation, where do we need to make changes, tweaks, adjustments, et cetera. And I think we made a lot of good progress.
1: So everything actually under Title X is supposed to flow from the Requirements of the warfighting commands. In other words, it says the secretary of the army, you will organize, train and equip in support of the requirements of the warfighting commands. You talked about the contingency plans. Did the warfighting commands, you know, there were a lot of them, Central Command, European Command, Indo-Pacific Command. Did they make the adjustments in their contingency plans to take into account? Uh, China is the pacing threat in, in Russia and in the, in the NDS before you left?
0: Well, we were beginning, we had begun reviewing all those war plans, principally the China and Russia war plans, to make sure that that the, the demands, the requirements of the combatant commanders actually met what we could supply or provide. And if it didn't, then why aren't the services adapting? Why isn't our acquisition system adapting to that? And why weren't we budgeting for those resources or people or organizations that they needed? And that is really the... The meat and potatoes of being SECDEF is making sure that you have uh, sound war plans that meet the intent of the commander in chief and his policies and that you have budgeted and resourced it to deliver what the combatant commanders think they need. And, of course, part of my job was getting into the plans and second guessing the combatant commanders, understanding what they were doing, making sure it met the policy ends we were trying to achieve. And that became a weekly function for me to kind of go through that in, in detail and not just with them, but. Look, these days we recognized, and the National Defense Strategy said this, was that it was great power competition on a global scale. So when you think about a fight with Russia or China, it just can't be in the Indo-Pacific, right? You have to think about, well, I may have to engage them in Latin America or in the Middle East or maybe somewhere on the European continent, or at least have to draw resources from those places to do so. So for me, it was important to have all the other combatant commanders in the room, particularly people like, as well, Northern Command, because they had to defend the United States. Or transportation command, which is a functional command that would rep- that would provide all the cargo aircraft and tankers, and et cetera, that would keep the fight going. So you got to have all those people in the room to understand the plan, or at least what the combatant commander was requesting.
1: As a staffer on the Hill decades ago, you actually got people focused on China, and you started talking about uh, worry about China. You served on a China commission. Mm -hmm. I I remember in the peak of the Cold War, my dad, who was a 1938 graduate of the Citadel, served with Patton's Army in Europe. As we were worrying about the Cold War and I was serving on the staff, he'd say, son, don't forget about China. I said, what the heck are you talking about, dad? It's Russia. Well, his roommate was a Chinese-American and he learned a lot. He said, China wants to get after us. He said, China's going to, if it takes them a thousand years, they're going to take over the United States. And frankly, in in the NDS from Jim Mattis, you said China's the pacing threat. Mm-hmm. And if you look at China, they're on the march. They're on the march militarily, they're on the march economically. They have more diplomatic posts now around the world than the United States. And and the thing to me that's most scary is they're on the march technologically and in many areas they're ahead of us technologically. And frankly, in some of them are military areas. In some areas we're yeah. still ahead. Um, and it's in and and of course they're threatening Taiwan. So Talk a little bit about what more needs. It's clear we haven't done all is, we need to do on China. And, 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 and unlike Russia, they're an economic threat. Yeah. They're a political threat. Uh, they're a military threat. So talk a little bit about China.
0: Look, you've, you've hit all the key points. This is why they are the greatest challenge we face in the 21st century. And I've been studying them since uh, at, at least 1995 when I was an Army war planner uh, working the Indo-Pacific or the Pacific Command at that time uh, profile. I was responsible for that portfolio. And so, yeah, look, they are the greatest threat we face because of all these things. Uh, the political might they bring, uh, th- their long-term planning, they've told us, they've written about it, right. that right. by 2035 they want to have a modern military, and by 2049 they want to dominate at least the Western but they're, Pacific. They're pretty modern
1: military today.
0: They are, we can, and we can talk about that, uh, particularly when it comes to the Navy. And so, look, they're on the march. They have diplomatic heft. They're, they're spreading money around the world, mm-hmm. trying to, to kind of bind the countries through their Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, you talk about the economy. Unlike the Soviet Union, and I grew up in the Cold War, as, as you did as well, uh, the, the China now possesses the second largest economy in the world. at $16 trillion. The Russians never had that. Um, and also, as you say, the, the Chinese have a lot of great technology, and they continue to, to, to grow that. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's on our backs. They're stealing our intellectual property, our, our plans. And, you know, the FBI has talked about, I think every 12 hours, they open up an espionage case against the Chinese government. So we need to be very concerned. I don't think we're in a position yet to to really fully deal with them. Again, I do give the uh, the Trump administration, I think we all collectively did a good job forming a consensus that China was our strategic adversary and getting many of our allies, both in Europe and Asia, on board with that
1: concept. And I think we need to keep pushing in that direction. Well, there's bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. They recognize this and they want to do something about it. What more do we need to be doing with China now so that we don't get ourselves in a situation that we got into with Ukraine. I think
0: we need to beef up other parts of the government. So we need to beef up the State Department, right, for our diplomatic efforts around the globe, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, just recently we learned that the Solomon Islands is signing some type of security agreement with the Chinese in the Pacific Island countries. That's terrible, right? We need to overturn that. But beef up State Department, beef up USAID to go into parts of Latin America and Africa and elsewhere where American diplomacy through aid and assistance can help grow it. Uh, in terms of DOD, we need to modernize our military. We need to make these big shifts in terms of how do you fight in the Indo-Pacific. And, that's look, that's going to require more defense spending. And I, I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. But we're making this transition from what I call the, the Reagan Cold mm-hmm. War military, uh, at least for the Army, that was built up to, to, this, uh, to a new type of military that can deal with China in the 21st century. That's why the, you know the Navy, U.S. Navy, is trying to make this transition. It's hard without more money. So there's all those things, and we need to bring all the allies and partners aboard as well. We can't, they just can't be focused on their own front yard, right? They need to focus on what's happening with China. And look, the other thing, too, is China has managed to, to eke its way into all these UN organizations where they're trying to seek control of U- United Nations bodies and, uh, and, and drive whether it's intellectual property or the WHO, uh, or the UN itself. And we need to just be very conscious th- of this and come up with a, really a national game plan to deal with it.
1: Well, let me let me talk about spending more money because one of your efforts at reform was quite notable. And and one of the reasons you need reform is, and as you know, in my second book titled The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force, I point out how we're spending more in constant dollars taking inflation out than the peak of the Reagan buildup, which was quite significant. You were part of that. And yet we have one billion less active duty. The Army's 50 percent smaller. The Navy's 50 percent smaller. We have 50 percent less fighting units. We're not getting the bang the buck for that we should. And I agree with you. We've got to increase. We've got to cover inflation. We've got to cover the modernization. But if we don't get more bang for the buck, we're not going to get the kind of capabilities you're talking about that we need vis-a-vis China. And you started the Army Night Court, which was an effort at reform. Secretary Mattis had three priorities, uh, which was uh, strengthen the lethality and the warfighting readiness of our military, strengthen our alliances and increase our partnerships and reform the military you added a fourth one that i'm going to talk about in a minute was take care of our troops and our families but let's talk about reform right and so you did in the night court you said look we're going to squeeze the budget we got to get money for modernization and then you brought it to the secretary of defense and one of the things you took on then i'll be quite honest we never did it in the congress i wish we had very few if any of your predecessors took it on and that was what i call the overhead in the department Mm -hmm. of defense if you look at what we call defense-wide spending, people argue about these numbers. DOD will admit it's between 17 to 20%. But if you add in what's called the classified spending on the big defense agencies, it's closer to 30%. So almost a third of the budget is spent on defense-wide spending, not on the tip of the spear. And we started uh, with one defense agency, the National Security Agency. We now have 28. Mm-hmm. These agencies are large behemoths, Defense Logistics Agency, a worldwide communications agency, a worldwide grocery chain, a worldwide dependent school system, a defense missile agency. And you started to take that on because you say, look, some of these things are big businesses, yet they're not run like a business. And, and, and they're military support organizations. And you tried to bring reform to the defense agencies, but probably left before you could get, you know, really what you wanted to get done. But talk a little bit yeah. about how we need to reform what we're doing in the Pentagon. And don't get me wrong, and I'm making a little bit of a longer question because I want to say, as you said in the beginning of your book, you gave credit to the men and women, active duty, guard and reserve, defense civilians, defense contractors, federally funded research and development. They come to work in the Pentagon every day to do the very best job they can for the warfighter and for the taxpayers, like the congressional staff. And yet former Secretary of Defense told me, Bill Perry said, Arnold, bad processes meet, beat good people every day. Mm-hmm. And in DOD, we still have a lot of a proliferation of bad processes, which you tried to yeah. reform. Talk a little bit about your reform efforts, particularly as it relates yeah. to these massive defense agencies. Yeah, so much
0: there to go after. You know, I came in as Secretary of the Army, uh, of the Army late uh, 2018 and within six months wrote a vision statement of where I wanted to take the Army. And uh, uh, General Milley fully supported me on that, co-signed this vision statement we put out. But I knew making that transition, right, in terms of uh, reorganizing the force, uh, a new talent Mm -hmm. personnel system, uh, uh, new equipment to deal with the China and Russia that we saw ahead, that I would need more money. And as much as I was going to go back to Congress and ask for that, I felt at the end of the day, because President Trump was really good in terms of giving us extra money, I knew at the end of the day we had to do a lot of our own internal work, kind of get rid of the get rid of the fat if we could, and, and make some hard choices. And so that's where Night Court began. As, I, as we introduced our uh, mod- six modernization priorities for the Army, which was everything from soldier lethality to long-range precision fires, I knew it would take billions of dollars. And when they, the team first presented me the budget, I didn't see it in there. And I just had to say time out to the process. I called, called them back in and said, I want all 500-plus programs ranked order, 1 to 500. And by the way, the 34 or so programs that we're building the Army modernization on had to come first. And what that ended up doing is people came in through a series of meetings. I think uh, the chain of command and I spent over 50 hours reviewing program after program, cutting and trimming and reducing. And at the end of the day, we freed up over 40-some billion dollars, cut 186 programs. Because my view was I can only control what I control, take care of myself. I'll do my own, you know, handiwork within the the Department of the Army to, to deal with that. And we were able to find that much money to reinvest in the Army. And I was just down at... Army Futures Command not long ago, and they told me that, uh, that by next year, by 23, they're going to deliver on 24 of those 31 programs, you know, kind of an, an initial rollout, uh, low-rate initial production, et cetera. So it's a, a great achievement, and I attribute that to the entire team at the time that did it. But to your next point, though, you know, you talk about when we're building this budget and aggressively for the Army cutting into it and going hard and prioritizing and reprioritizing and making these choices – I, at one point, I get a bill from OSD and they say, you you have to chip in, you know, two, three billion dollars to to pay for this or that. And I, it really got me angry. And, I'm, and I was complaining why and this and that and couldn't get a good answer. And I had to pay my bill. So when I become secretary of defense, I now have the budget and I find out what's going on. The so-called fourth estate that you call overhead is something that consumes, I don't know, over one hundred and ten billion dollars a right. year. And it's a couple dozen agencies. And what they were doing was just. Twenty (laughs) eight. They were they they, they had all their programs and activities. And in some ways they would work with the combatant commands and they would levy bills on the services. And they weren't subject, in my view, to any supervision or oversight or checking to see if it was consistent with where the department was going. So I clamped down on that. And in fact, one of the things we did was we put a civilian in charge of the fourth estate to manage its administrative and budgetary stuff so that they couldn't grow personnel. They couldn't make these budget demands and really cut it back. And I thought it was a kind of a big accomplishment. We we needed more work to do on that. Uh, But look, I think they should be subject to all that. And then of course, you got to deal with all the other growth that happens out there, but that's really the hard work of the department. And as much as I can say on one hand, we need to grow the defense budget. And I I was a big big supporter of the three to 5% annual growth. We also still as DOD civilians and senior military officers have a duty to the American people to be good stewards of every single dollar. Which means even when we're getting the additional cash, we still got to go back in there and and get rid of the, you you know, the the excess, the the fat, et cetera, et cetera. And we have to do good audits. And that's really the hard work of the department. And frankly, look, it's not going to get done unless the secretary of defense gets involved. And that's why I put a lot of personal time toward that. You know, David Norquist, the deputy secretary of defense and I, and I think in a two month period in August and September, uh, found five, six, seven billion dollars that we could immediately cut and put back into war fighting and some people said that wasn't enough but for me that was a good start for all the time we put into it
1: well and and look these are important organizations don't get me wrong but i mean it's the point is we need to get more bang for the buck yeah. out of them just like you got more bang for the buck out of the army and as secretary of the army you had the army by the stack and swivel that's a term we understand as military folks As secretary of defense it's a little bit harder yeah. to get control of of some of these organizations one of the things that, you know, we do have the world's finest military, we want to keep it that way and there are really three reasons. We recruit and retain the best people and their families and we want to talk about that in a minute. We give them constant realistic training, but we also from our industry give them the best technology so they're never in a fair fight. You worked in industry. How important is the defense industrial base and the technologies then and and as Secretary of Defense, you ha- you prioritized I think 10 or 11 top priorities from hypersonics to artificial intelligence to quantum, 5G. How important to our country and to our economy is keep them a focus on these cutting edge technologies, particularly when China, we know they're ahead of us in hypersonics. Some people would argue they're ahead of us in AI. Other people say, well, not so much. Quantum, General Height, in the former vice chairman, says it's still an open book in quantum, but it's very important. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the importance of our industrial base.
0: And before I do so, I'd I'd also add you know, what's, what's important about the United States military and our personnel is how we empower non-commissioned officers. Right, exactly. You know, and we're seeing this play out on the battlefield in Ukraine versus Russia, how non-commissioned officers are really the strength uh, of our military. But, yeah, look, I, I served many years in the defense industry. It gave me a good insight into what makes them function, into what incentivizes them, and mm-hmm. also in terms of how they operate. So I was able to leverage that a good deal as, um, as I came back to be Secretary of the Army and Secretary of Defense. And I would meet weekly as a SEC Army, with industry to kind of find out how can we improve, how can we do better. It, it, helped, uh, it helped when I stood up Army Futures Command in terms of how we craft that. I know that industry needs predictability. And so one of the things we set out to do, we being myself, Under Secretary uh, Ryan McCarthy, and then Jim McConville and Mark Milley as the two Army senior leaders, was to put predictability into what the Army wanted and not change it. Because if you can get predictability and if you can put money behind it, industry will respond and they will innovate. And uh, I'm, I'm proud to say it's 2022. Four years later, the Army still hasn't changed its prioritization in terms of modernization, and that's key in terms of signaling right. to both to, to, to industry, but also to the Army where you're going. Now, I'll tell you, since I uh, since I left service, I'm working more in, in uh, venture capital. Uh, I, I'm on a, a firm called Red Cell, doing a lot of interesting work. I wish I knew more about that part of the ecosystem because that's really where innovation happens, and uh, some of the Some of the companies, uh, founders, innovators that I take briefings from, I hear from, are just doing cutting-edge work. And what I'm hoping I'm able to do now that I wish I had known then was, how do you get those really small innovators and founders before DOD senior leadership so that we can make those big bets, uh, just like venture capital does, on cutting-edge technologies that will allow us to leapfrog the Chinese? And if I could do it all over again, I would be meeting with those guys at least quarterly to find out. To make those big bets, because, again, the problem with acquisition and DOD, it's so it's so bureaucratic and they're risk averse. But if you have the secretary of defense personally involved and willing to kind of make those big bets, uh, willing to kind of uh, uh, to get some of them wrong. But but knowing that if you get some right, it'll really make a difference. That's yeah. the key.
1: I, that's so important. And I think the Congress ought to give the DOD people some incentives to take risk. And yeah. we need to get the DOD lawyers to let the senior leaders meet with some of these cutting-edge industries, not, and not thinking it's giving them an advantage of someone else. When I talk to the Silicon Valley and these cutting-edge commercial firms and everybody, they get so frustrated, as you well know. They tell you the same thing of dealing with the bureaucracy. And, and yeah. the leaders at the top, if you look now – uh, worked in the Army, uh, Heidi Shue, who's now the head of technology yeah. in the Department of Defense. She's very aggressive in this area. And yeah. they, the DOD, Kath Hicks, who followed David Norquist they as the it. chief operating officer, they want this technology in our government. They want it for our military, but the bureaucracy is really an encumbrance. So, so you're spot well, look, on that's, on that. That's
0: why we put Army Futures Command in Austin, Texas, which was a right. hub of innovation. But even today, I sit on the board of small companies, and they sit in this valley of death for right. 18 months, and they just can't survive if you're a company of 100, 200 people. How do you make it through, even though they have cutting technology? you know. Right. Uh, well, can- your, your
1: acquisition secretary, Ellen Lord, did a terrific she job. Did. She's been followed by Bill LaPlante, who said yeah. in his confirmation hearing, we've got to get back to hot production lines. So I think there's an incentive by the leaders both in your tenure and the current tenure to do this. We just got to get around the bureaucracy. Right. One of your top priorities- and I talk about this in the book. I mean, yeah, this is an important chapter. This
0: this book is not all about Donald Trump. Correct, right? people, absolutely. People want to portray it that way, but this is about my tenure, and there are whole chapters here that barely mention, if at all, uh, the president. And
1: this is one of them, right, is how do you, right. h- how do you innovate and how do you reform? And, and look, this is critically important for the American people for history. All your predecessors, Harold Brown, Bill Perry, Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Bob Gates, Leon Panetta, Ash Carter have written books, and these are all important because, as we said, the Department of Defense is a learning organization. It's one of the few organizations in government that's always striving to do better. And so people, you know, this is a Bible for not just the war colleges but for people in industry to look at the things we need to fix. And that's going to be my last question. But I was going to say, I
0: I wrote the book for three audiences. One was the American people in history, but the next two were people in government and DOD, so people could learn these lessons. I've referred many times, all of my predecessors, I think nearly all of them, have written books. Right. And I would go back and read read their books and understand, trying to understand,
1: you know, how they did things or lessons learned, just like you're saying. So you, you, you were a, a, a military family. So when yeah. you added to the fourth priority, the military families, spouse, child care, you know, when the volunteer force was put into effect in 1973 from the draft that was so unpopular in Vietnam... President Nixon had asked the former Secretary of Defense Gates, not Bob Gates, right. to do a commission. And he said, Look, we should go to a volunteer force. We got to fix three things, though the, the Cliff retirement system, the Upper Out promotion system, mm-hmm. and pay should be based on skills and performance, not time and grade. Very few of those things have changed, but we do have a volunteer force. But in the 70s, it almost went under, and we didn't pay enough attention to the family. Nowadays, if you don't have child care, if you don't have programs for spouses to get employment, you're going to lose the best and the brightest. You had that as a real priority. Tell us a yeah. little bit about why and what you did.
0: You know, and when I entered uh, active duty as an officer in 1986 at Fort Campbell, you know, most it seemed to me that most folks weren't married and had kids. Uh, but over time, that changed, and now what you have is you know, folks are married. They're often married to military spouses, and in, of course, in today's society, most spouses work. And so what I find, it, it, it's this kind of old adage we say, right, you recruit the soldier, but you retain the family. And I just, I just saw too many places where we were talking the talk and not doing enough to deliver on that. And so I really went after, you know, how do we fix the employment system for our spouses? How do we go after uh, recognizing certificates, right, as you move from state to state? Because the spouses were having a hard time getting hired because they didn't have the proper credentials. And we tried to work either by ourselves. I, I worked a lot with my fellow service secretaries and with the Hill To kind of break that down, and then as I went after spousal, after I went as I went after childcare, I found that the biggest problem in our childcare wasn't necessarily spaces; it was the fact that they were often only three quarters filled because our hiring system wasn't up to the task. So we went after tackling that, and then there are you know a a myriad of other things, and I describe it in the end this kind of chapter about just the the nature of the military and its bureaucracy, where where we were telling families that. You can't come into the PX or the commissary unless you're properly dressed, right? And um, as you noted, look, my wife and I, I served 21 years. Uh, she was with me since I was a young lieutenant. Saw me go off, to war, go off to war. We PCS'd multiple times from to Europe, back to Europe within the United States. We dealt with childcare. We dealt with all these things. And she was an incredible help to me and would pick up these ideas as she met with spouses as we would go on the road. And one of the complaints was... You, you know, why can't I wear fitness gear into our PXs and commissaries? And just the bureaucratic resistance is something like as simple as that, because my view was, look, the, the the sailor, the airman, the soldier, the Marine may have signed up for the military, but the spouses didn't. It's a family business, but let's not make it unnecessarily difficult on what is the strength of the, of the U.S. military at this point, which is the families that support our, our service members. Yeah,
1: and, and I mean, it's the same in other parts of America. But you got very frustrated with, yeah. with that priority and... And, you know, I, would, I could see where the acquisition system would frustrate you. I could see where the, trying to fix the fourth estate would frustrate you. But, frankly, this is such a no-brainer about the families. What, what made it so frustrating? that Look, the,
0: the, I, I lived it. My wife lived it. Um, you know, uh, it's it just that you're, you're trying to what should be a service initiative to go out there and allow, to, to make life easier for our families, in this case, allowing them to wear fitness gear into our commissaries and PXs, met this stiff bureaucratic resistance. And I said, okay, well, if it's your responsibility, then fix it. And I just found an unwillingness to fix it. I don't think it was coming from the civilians as much as from the kind of ingrained culture of the military. At the end of the day, I said, uh, look, I've had enough. I'm just going to have to do what a Secretary of Defense shouldn't have to do and to tell military families that, yes, you're allowed to wear uh, fitness gear, leisure gear, if you will, into uh, the PXs and commissaries and stuff like that. It was a small thing, but I think an important thing for our families. And I just wanted to signal that... Uh, Every day I went in, I kept our families in mind uh, as I dealt with all these issues.
1: We're getting towards the end of, of, of our program, in civilian control of the military, we've talked about that. It was so fundamental to your moral compass uh, that you adhere to the Constitution, maintain what you call civilian control of the military. Uh, one of the areas that um, uh, we've had is we've had somewhat of a controversy, Jim Mattis Uh, had to get a waiver from the Congress to serve because he had not been retired long enough. Same with Secretary Austin. Me, personally, I've never been in favor of the retired military. That's why we put in a 10-year provision. Now it's back to 10 years. You've been Secretary of the Navy. You've served in the military. I know you admire both of those individuals. You and I both admire them. But, frankly, uh, do you think we ought to have recently retired military people serve as Secretary of Defense? Well, let me begin the answer by saying this much. My,
0: My hometown boyhood hero is George Marshall and George Marshall was Secretary of Defense in September, I think, 1950. He was called back by Truman to help after the failings of the military in Korea. And he didn't think that it made sense for a former, you know, retired military officer to be a Secretary of Defense, uh, but did it nonetheless. And look, uh, to answer your question directly, no, I don't think so. I think that kind of moratorium of 10 years, whatever it was, made sense. It has nothing to do with, with uh, Secretary Mattis or Secretary Austin. It has everything to do with... Uh, kind of getting, making sure that you have a distinct difference between the military culture and the civilian culture. And they're very different skill sets in in terms of what both bring to the job. Doesn't mean you can't be successful, but I think having that separation uh, makes a big difference. And and I would, I would support, you know, uh, reinstating that moratorium and maintaining it. We have enough good people out there that can, that are civilians that can fulfill that role as secretary of defense to do that. Because I think civilian control of the military is critical. I have a whole chapter in there where I outline some of the problems I saw coming in as a civilian secretary that I didn't think the civilians were being used enough. I mean, I had to forcibly push civilians into the war planning and review process, as an example. And there are other areas where I got pushed back from the brass. But nonetheless, I had good civilian secretaries uh, and good civilian leaders in OSD that were able to push through that and try and pull some of that control back. And I... As I talk about in the conclusion of that chapter, this is something that I think the Congress needs to relook.
1: Well, it's very clear from our conversation today, Secretary Esper, it's very clear from this truly remarkable, important book, it's very clear from your entire history and your entire experience that you did bear true faith and allegiance to your oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I know I speak as a person, I know my family, I know everybody it knows you. I know the American public appreciates uh, what you did, your service, that of your family. Uh, And again, I think you have a lot of valuable lessons uh, to convey uh, to the Congress, to the American people, continue to work to support a strong national defense. And so uh, we greatly admire you and thank you. And obviously we we thank C-SPAN for giving us this opportunity to spend so much time allowing you to talk about things that are so important to the future of our country. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast,
0: listen to C SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers' lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest
1: books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.